Good morning. How about those kiddos? Yeah. <clears throat> Speaking of kiddos, my wife and I uh, went and watched uh, Wonka in the movie theater uh, this last week. Such a, a wonderful, uh, jovial uh, production. And uh, when Kayla and I were, were trying to plan on what to do on Friday, uh, we thought about all the things you could do when it's raining and cold outside. And about the only thing that we could come up with was, well, let's go see a movie. Are there any good movies out? And uh, thankfully, uh, we had seen a lot of advertisements and a lot of commercials about Wonka. If you don't know Wonka, it's a prequel of the original Willy Wonka. So it's telling the story of Willy Wonka before the story that we know about Willy Wonka. And of course, we knew that as we looked at the advertisements. We had a glimpse into uh, what we would expect. And sure enough, we bought the tickets. We show up uh, here over at Creekside, walk into the movie theater, uh, sit down, and it, the movie was exactly what we would expected. Although there was a lot of details that we did not previously know from the advertisements that we were able to enjoy and watch in real time. Now, that's important because as we're thinking about the Old Testament, and we're thinking about prophecy, you can think about the Old Testament prophecy a lot like an advertisement for a movie. Right? We, as, as we look at Scripture, we can see God giving us glimpses and, and previews of what He's going to do in the future. Right? He's giving us these glimpses into uh, what we can expect Him to do in His redemptive programming here on earth before those events actually happen. That's a wonderful thing about God's plan is He gives us previews. He gives us these advertisements and saying, hey, here's what you can expect uh, when the fullness of time comes, particularly as we talk about the birth of Jesus. Here's what you can expect. Here's what you should be looking for. Uh, side note, I think that's one of the biggest problems with people who don't actually celebrate Christmas uh, in a way that's full of joy and meaning is because you don't know the redemptive programming. And I think one of the biggest problems is, is you know, you're trying to celebrate this thing that you've never seen the previews for. You've never even seen the commercials. People are getting excited about something that's about to happen, and you don't even know what that's about. But yet you're trying to conjure up feelings and nostalgia. Uh, but the problem is, is they're actually separated from the substance of the joy of what those of us who understand, at least in a little bit, right, in the previews, the redemptive programming of God, that what we are expecting to come, not in the first advent that has already happened, but in that second advent, that second coming of Christ. And so for us, we need to look at the Old Testament prophecies like advertisements of saying, here is a glimpse of what we can expect when it comes. There's going to be details, there's going to be things that we don't necessarily know in full, but we get the picture. We actually... As we think about prophecy, we see one of those prophecies coming to fruition right before our eyes there in John chapter 1. And I would love for you, if you haven't already in your Bible, you can turn there to John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. This prophecy here in John 1 that I'm talking about is not John the apostle, but John the baptizer. He is foretold a number of times in the Old Testament that we'll look at briefly, uh, but we have this advertisement in the Old Testament that says there's coming this one. He's a forerunner of the one, right? He's the forerunner of the Christ who is to come. And before Christ shows up on the scene, there's going to be this one coming before him that's going to prepare the way for him. And so before Christ comes, there has to be this detail right there before him called the forerunner. This is important for you because I want you to begin thinking, at least as we start approaching the first point this morning, I want you to begin thinking of the detailed planning and the promises of God. You need to begin thinking about how meticulous God is as a planner. 
how specific God is in his plan that he says, I'm not just going to thrust my son into the world. I'm actually going to do detail, a lot of details before that. And there's a lot of details after that. But I want you to recognize the promise-keeping God that we serve is a God of detail, God of meticulous detail. Nothing, nothing out of order, nothing forgotten about. God remembers all of these things. And one of those particular things that he wants us to remember is that there's going to be a forerunner. And his role was to introduce Jesus to the world. If you want to know, in a phrase, at least when it comes to this text we're in this morning, and John's mission, it's in the preaching point up on the screen. Here is what John's purpose here in the world was. that His testimony, he arrived on earth as a forerunner of Christ to remind us that adoption as God's children is an exclusive right of the one who turns from sin and trust in Christ for the deliverance from the consequences of that sin. If you read all four Gospels, which all four Gospels have the account of John the Baptist in different lights and different details, but they all show the importance of this forerunner. That's really important because if you look at the four Gospels, there's very few that all of them share in common. The Gospel writers are trying to prove their point of understanding who Jesus is as they're talking to their particular audiences. They're trying to pick stories and they're trying to pick narratives that help people understand what they need them to understand about Jesus in order for them to be saved. And one of those stories, much like the feeding of the 5,000, the Passion Week leading up to the death of Christ, his crucifixion, uh, and John the Baptist are things that the Gospels all share in common. And so when you think about that, you think, This John the Baptist guy, he must be pretty important when it comes to God's meticulous, careful plan. And it it is. He is very important because he shares the testimony of telling everyone that God's children are exclusively those who turn from their sins and they trust in Christ for deliverance. And this is what you see John the Baptist preaching. I mean, you see it in Mark 1.15. You see it there even in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he says, I'm coming to prepare the way. I'm not the Christ, right? I'm not the one. As a matter of fact, the one who's coming, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. But I'm telling you, here's what you need to do in preparation. Repent and prepare for the Christ who is to come. So if you're there, I'd love for you to put your eyes on verse 6 there in John chapter 1. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Just to reiterate, we're not talking about John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel of John. We're talking about John the Baptizer. He came, in verse 7, as a witness. A better name for John might be John the Witness. Because more than talking about his work of baptizing, all of the Gospels talk about him as a witness. And that's the same word we get for martyr in Greek. That witness is that word martyr. Uh, which didn't always mean those who died for Christ. It was those who witnessed for Christ, those who came and they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who came to bear testimony about the Christ. And this is exactly what we see John doing, which, you know, not even incidentally so, John did become a martyr of his belief in Christ as the Messiah and his unapologetic preaching of repentance from sin. But nevertheless, he came there in verse 7 to bear witness about the light. I mean, that was his entire life. I mean, that was his entire mission, even as we see the prophecy in the other Gospels about his, his birth was even planned by God in that particular time in history for him to grow up to prepare the way for Christ, which happens to be his cousin. That's a whole nother, a whole nother sermon, perhaps. 
that all might believe through him. You remember last week I told you you needed to remember John 20, verses 30 and 31. Do you remember that? Because that was the whole theme of the Gospel of John. And again, you remember, at least I'll reiterate it again right here for you in verse 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, we need to recognize as we're reading all of the Gospel of John, it's written in the context of John chapter 20. It's important because if you read this verse right here, why did John come to bear witness about the light? That all might believe through him. You see, John, the baptizer, and John, the apostle, here in this text are a proof of the fact that the whole gospel of John, and really the whole mission of Christ on earth, was that he would come, he would take our place, and that by believing, pastuo, we'll get to in a moment, to trust in Christ to reject the darkness, to reject the world, to reject ourselves and trust in Christ would be the way in which we would become children of God, that we would receive adoption by God as his children. And then in verse 8, John wants to make sure, John the Apostle, talking about John the Baptizer, it says he, we're talking about John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. I mean, that was the role of the forerunner of Christ. I'm coming to tell you what is to come. I am, if you will, the advertisement, the last advertisement before the real production shows up, before you show up and see what we've been talking about. But there were some other advertisements in the past. I want to give you two of them, which I hope would just give you a robust faith that would give you such confidence and a solid foundation under you to say, wow, look at our God who is a promise-keeping God who is very detailed and meticulous. There are two Old Testament verses I want you to jot down. The first one is Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah is just chock full of advertisements of the coming of Christ. We see them and we see it in chapter 9, we see it here in verse 40, you see it I think I believe in chapter 33. I mean so often as we look at Isaiah we see the suffering servant, we see the one who is to come, the child who's the government will rest on his shoulders. So many of those things that are forecasting the coming of Christ, but here in Isaiah 40 in verse 3 through 5 we have the we have the prophet Isaiah who's speaking get this 700 years before Christ. 700 years. I mean, this is an advertisement, a long time coming. Okay? Telling, I'm going to tell you this, 700 years before it happens, so that you will remember how long I've been planning for this and preparing for this. And this is what he says, this is what Isaiah is saying about John the Baptist. Verse 3, a voice cries, quote-unquote, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Right? There's your prophecy. Talking about John the Baptist, so much so that you even see in Luke, right, which is the verse that, that takes this passage and, and, and shows us the meaning of this passage. Luke 1, 76-79 is another verse you should jot down there in the New Testament connecting these passages, talking about John the Baptist. Luke 1, 76 through 79. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist, and it says, And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the Most High. Now, listen to this, the quote literally from Isaiah 40. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people 
in the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. Remember, who is Christ? The light of the world. And here we have the promise that John the Baptist is going to come prepare the way for the Lord because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the light will visit us from on high. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Oh, come on, you don't make that stuff up. I mean, this is prophecy being fulfilled in real time as we look at the life of John the Baptist and the incarnation of Christ to recognize, wow, God has just really been about this since the foundations of the world. He has always had a plan to redeem his people, a people for himself, to give light where there is darkness and to give life where there is death. There's another Old Testament verse I'd love for you to jot down. Malachi 4. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Two interesting facts about Malachi. Uh, number one, it is the last book in our Old Testament canon as we have it in Scripture. And so really, Malachi 4 is the last chapter in the Old Testament. You have this gap of 400 years that we call the intertestamental period where there was no prophet speaking. There was no word from God other than what had previously been written. And these, these are some of the last words that, have, that were given by God as people were waiting on the consolation of Israel, as they were waiting on the Messiah to come. These are the last words. Think about this. These are the last words that God had spoken to his people Israel 400 years before the birth of John the Baptist or Christ. This is what he says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So there's, there's your quote. Before Christ is incarnate, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is that first advent there, that I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And then I want you to jot down Luke 1, 16 through 17. Here we've got another prophecy about John the Baptist's birth. And I want you to remember what I just said in Malachi 4 and literally what's said here. Luke 1, 16 and 17. And he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There is John's identity. There's his mission. There's his ministry. This is all to show exactly how meticulous God is in his planning to come and to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. It would have been simple enough right, for him to just have sent Christ, wouldn't it? But that's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who prepares, he goes before us, he's there, he goes before us, he makes sure all things are prepared, taken care of, and then we come behind him as he's prepared and done everything, and all we do is walk in them. I mean, doesn't that just give you echoes of Ephesians 2.10? Right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it is just like God to prepare the way, to do all of the groundwork, and all that those are doing who are faithful unto him are just walking in obedience. Right? We're just going to go do the thing in which you've already prepared. Right? That flies right in the face of our culture that says, you want to do something, you've got to do it your own way, you've got to pave your own path, you've got to walk your own way. And we're going to say, that is just not the way of Scripture. Scripture says the way has been prepared from beginning to end. And so we're going to trust that God has prepared a way, just as we see here. I mean, it's just a great, uh, for us, confidence booster to see God is a God of meticulous detail. 
He's a God of order, and he's got a planning. I mean, just like this promise you see of John the Baptist, which even devotionally, I just hope you can, we can think about this, this perfect plan, the perfect order, the perfect implementation. I want you to think about this, guys. I mean, just think for a minute. In order for a baby to be born, there has to be an agreement between a husband and a wife to have a baby. All right? and, you, and they think, perhaps, I mean, John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth, husband, thought, ah, we, it's, we're going to plan to have a kid. But to think over all that, God superintended and said, no, 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 no. I am planning for you to have a kid. And as a matter of fact, you may have been thinking about this kid for a couple of years. I've been thinking about this kid for hundreds of years, thousands of years, that this would be the, the child that would be born for this specific moment to be the forerunner of Christ. i just give you one detail. Imagine how many other details God superintended over carefully to bring about what happened. And you're over here stressed out about things that ain't even going to matter in 100 years. Right, that's just for you. Put it in your pocket. Okay. I want you to do this as point number one. I want you to increase your confidence in God's redemptive program. I want you to increase your confidence in God's redemptive program. What is a redemptive program? A redemptive program is just a theological way to say this. That you need to trust that God has had this figured out from before the foundations of the world, and he's got this figured out all the way for eternity future. Right? God has had everything planned out from, your, from an individual's salvation to the, the corporate deliverance of God's people to the eternal glory that is to be re- revealed to us at the coming of Christ. All that stuff is taken care of. Well, what about, what about Genesis? You know, that wasn't taken care of. Which, it was in God's perfect plan that although that sin entered the world, that he had a plan even before the foundations of the world in the fullness of time to send his son. So it wasn't even outside of God's purview or outside of God's absolute control and sovereignty that the fall even happened. The fact that the fall happened and God made a plan is perfect proof of God's sovereign, redemptive program in history. That you and I don't have to worry, is there a way? Absolutely there's a way. There's a way because God's redemptive programming has made a way. And I want you to grow your confidence in that this morning. I want you to have great confidence that from today until eternity, you can just have great joy with eager expectation that we celebrate on Christmas. This first advent is of no, listen to this, is of no value if there is no second advent. Okay? And so your hope isn't in the birth of an infant. Your hope is the fact of the birth of an infant gave us the opportunity for a resurrection like his. The second advent is what we're looking for. So you can't even celebrate Christmas rightly if you do not have confidence in God's redemptive program. Because we celebrate Christmas because there's a redemptive program that is at play in perfect detail and perfect timing. And when the fullness of time comes, just like he sent his son in the first advent, he's coming back in the second advent, and we're going to be met in the air with him, and they're going to come down with him, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign for a thousand years. He's going to subdue evil. He's going to take care of all the bad things, and then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell together with him for eternity. And if that's not why you celebrate Christmas, there's no wonder why you have a lack of joy for Christmas, because that's what Christmas is all about. And for us, I want us at Compass Bible Church, increase your confidence in God's redemptive programming. I want you to think about your own salvation and God's perfect planning just for a moment, and I want you to do it according to 2 Timothy. You, so you can actually turn there in your Bible. 2 Timothy 1, we'll start there in verse 9. But when it comes to planning and it comes to the perfect timing, I want you to think about your own testimony. If you're saved in this room, think about how God saved you, where you were, when it was, what was going on. 
And I don't even want you just to think about it in your own context. I want you to think about it in God's redemptive program. I want you to think about it in God's timeline. All these things are going on. John the Baptist, you probably didn't even know those things about John the Baptist. And yet, according to Jesus, there was no one born among men who were more significant than John the Baptist. But yet, you barely know anything about John the Baptist. Why do I say that? Because you make such a big deal out of you, and I make such a big deal out of me. Sometimes we need to take a little bit of humility and say, there's people that are way more important than us I know nothing about, but yet God took care of them. God's going to take care of me, uh, even though that I don't know everything that has happened and will happen. But what I can do is learn more about God, learn about his planning, learn about how he brings about salvation, and I can grow in my confidence, even though that, like me, we're ignorant about so much about God. But we can't use ignorance to keep us from having confidence. We have to get rid of ignorance in as much as it is keeping us from confidence in God. And so I hope in a little way this verse will do it for, for you. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. I'm talking about Jesus, right? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Again, we have salvation in Christ, and he called us to something. I love that word called because it's, it's, when we say called to, we're saying that he didn't just save you and leave you there. He called you to something, forward to something, okay? which, again, flies in the face of even a culture who talks anything about salvation. And the only thing Jesus came down to do was save me. I can live life however I want to until he comes back. But we forget this little phrase, called to. But he called you to something, which he called you out of something. He called you out of your sin and into the kingdom of light. And he has, according, we just said it in Ephesians uh, 2.10, that he's got all these things for you to do here as we wait for that second advent. And you, in great confidence, can walk that path and walk in faith, doing all the things that God has commanded us to do, knowing full well that you have confidence in God's redemptive programming, that he is going to rectify, he's going to reconcile, he's going to justify everything that you've done in obedience to him, not right this second, there's going to be a lot of people who look at you right this second and call you crazy, call you a fanatic. But all of that stuff is going to be justified when Christ returns in his second advent. But you're only going to do that and believe that and live that if you look at Christmas for what it really is. And it is us looking at that first advent, knowing full well that that first advent comes with a promise of a second. And so let, here's what it says in the rest of verse 9. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. We're all about that, right? Faith alone, right? We understand that it's not by works. But here's where you may disagree, but you can't, because it's what the Bible says. You were saved because of his own purpose and his own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And this is really what I want you to see. When it comes to even your own personal salvation, it was God's purpose and God's grace in your life that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, that word ages, and that may be a little bit... Uh, it may be a little bit cloudy for your mind, but it's the Greek word chronos, which is where we get the word chronological, which just means time. And so it'd be fine for you and very biblical to say, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the time began. So even as you think about your salvation, Scripture testifies that even your salvation was, was planned before time even began. So if you think that, that God is flying around like a chicken trying to gather his, his chicks because they've all ran amok and he's trying to go get them before time runs out, you've completely missed the picture of the gospel. The picture of the gospel is that God is superintendent over all time, created it, and before time began has already, by his own purpose and grace, gave us salvation of course, that has to happen in time and space, right? So that's why I said to remember there was a time and a moment 
where when you responded to Christ, you turned from your sins and placed your trust in Christ. But you must understand in God's redemptive programming, that was already set in place before time began. How much confidence does that give you in God to recognize it was you didn't just stumble upon salvation? God put that in front of you in the path that He had for you, that you would respond to that in a specific time and place, but yet it was not planned in that time and place. It was, it was planned way before. I just want you to begin scratching the surface of that so you can begin having confidence in God's redemptive programming and knowing that if God so saw it with a fine, minor, in the grand scheme of things, right, for most people, not for you, but for most people, 8 billion people in the world, he didn't forget about you, you can imagine that God's got everything else under control. Everything else. And you can know that God cares abundantly for his children. You're going to have to, and I'm, I trust me, I mean this when I look at you, through counseling, through meetings, even through my own personal life, you're going to have to know and learn God's promises of Scripture, both past and promise. And again, you need to learn these, yes, for yourself. I think you've heard plenty of messages on that, right? You need to go learn God's promises and preach them to yourself. There is some truth in that. But the problem is, if you keep making every single promise about you, the problem is, is you're such a small, insignificant particle in the universe, Important to God, but you need something bigger than yourself to focus on. That's why God makes all of his promises about him. Do you notice when God makes promises, he swears by himself? He makes it about him. You know, I swear on my name for my glory. And then even when you see a lot of the patriarchs, they're talking to God, and they say, God, deliver me for your name's sake, right? Because they recognize that who this is really about is God, and we want God's name to be glorified. We want God's name to be honored. So I want you to think, yes, you need to know the promises of Scripture. Past ones, the ones like we're learning right now, who have a past fulfillment in John the Baptist. But even the future promises that we can be looking forward to. Because I'm going to show you in a text, Hebrews 10. You can just jot that down. Hebrews 10, 20 through, through 23. Like without those promises and your knowledge of them and your application of them both personally and both in the way that you ascribe them glory and honor to the Lord is going to do everything in your faith to give you hope and assurance that without which you're just going to be lacking if you don't see God's redemptive programming if you don't see God's faithfulness in every little thing throughout history you're going to be wondering where is God right now what is he doing right now Hebrews 10 22 through 23 let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Well, there is already what we got to do. i got to have a full assurance of faith. And there's a lot of people in this room probably saying, I don't have full assurance of faith. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, well, first, our hearts have to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a uh, po- poetic language from the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, explained through Christ, right? The blood of Christ would then sprinkle you and purify you. You need to be saved, right? You want to have full assurance. You need Christ. You need to be saved. You have an evil conscience. Even as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we walk in darkness. The light has come, and we need to respond to the light by turning from our sins, placing our trust in Christ. And our bodies washed with pure water. That means even our lives ought to be reflecting in that, right? It's not enough that you just you say that you follow Christ. There is a commitment there of I'm going to live for Christ. And then, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So verse 23 is really where I'd like you to think. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Well, what is the confession of your hope? Well, that would be the promises of God now, wouldn't it? And you're supposed to hold fast to something 
And depending on who you are in here, that you don't even know. You don't know the promises of God. You have little to hold fast to. So when, you know, as we read things like uh, Psalm 46 and the kingdom's rage and the, 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 wa- no, the, the waves rage and the kingdom's totter and the kings are plotting in vain, you're over here just stressed out and anxious about everything because you know not the confession of your faith. You know not the hope of which you're waiting for he who promises faithful in those things. You want to have confidence? You want to, have a, you want to hold fast to the hope that you have? You want us to have you want to have a full assurance of faith, you're going to have to know God's promises. And all I wanted to do this morning, at least here, was to give us a little bitty glimpse of, hey, did you see John the Baptist right there? That was no accident. That was 700 years and 400 years in the Word separating when that was given and when it actually came about. And I'm going to tell you, I promise you, you know America's only been here for a little over 200 and something odd years. Like, you know what I'm saying? So even America, if we were Israel at that point, which don't even draw conclusions here, it would say you'd still have a couple hundred years to be waiting even for that first promise. All I'm saying is you got to start looking at things within God's redemptive programming, which may not mean everything for you right now that you're going to get everything you want right now. But the promise there is Christ is going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver individuals here in the church age. And there's coming a time in the second advent where he's coming to redeem the world It doesn't mean everyone's getting saved. It means he's going to come and he's going to make the world new. And all those who have trusted in Christ, he's going to bring them with him as his children. And we're going to enjoy all those things in which you long for right now. And if you want to know why you long for those things and how those things will be fulfilled, you need to know the promises of God. And then I hope you have confidence in God's redemptive programming. But I, I get it here, right? I mean, I understand something that you're going to be dealing with, and it's skepticism and doubt. And I'm, and I'm not even talking about yours right now. I'm talking about the world's skepticism and doubt. Right? You're telling me that you believe that there's a Savior, and He was born of a virgin, and He came here? Yeah. And you're telling me that He died as a substitute for your sin? Well, and yours, but yes. Okay. And you're telling me that he died, was three days in a tomb, and he was resurrected, and now he's in, in another dimension, which is what eternity with heaven would be, right? Uh, at the right hand of God, yes. And he's coming back, yes. Right? I get it, right? I get it. But the problem is, is you can't allow the skepticism of the world to, to hamper and to hinder your hope and your conviction and your assurance in our day, in your life. You can't do it. Right? You say, well, here's, here's, I know it sounds crazy, but here's what God said. Thus saith the Lord. Anything else that is said outside of that is thus saith man. And here's the problem with that. My God is a miraculous God. My God does a lot of amazing things. You want to think about how crazy it is that Jesus came, all those things that I just said about his incarnation and his death. You know how crazy it is that the world is even here? You ever think about that for a moment? I mean, science has been scratching their heads on that for a, quite a long time. And the reality of our entire existence is it's all miraculous. No one can agree on how the world began because we can't get anything past the fact that it couldn't have happened anyway. But that it did happen is pretty miraculous reality for you and me. And thus, therefore, when the Bible starts out with that wonderful miracle that no one can explain, it catches my attention and says, God had this all figured out that we would be wondering a really important question. And we see it right there in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And he made a promise, and he's made promises all throughout Scripture, all throughout history, that teaches me that I can have great confidence, and I'm not going to have skepticism or doubt about the things that God has promised. But as a Christian, I can recognize that is the way of the world. We can see that even in verses 9 and 11 there in John. I mean, look at John 1, verses 9 and 11. I mean, skepticism is forecasted for the Christian. So if your goal in this life is to be accepted and affirmed by the world around you, you're at the wrong place. You're at the wrong church for sure, okay? But you're in the wrong faith, the wrong belief system. Because this is not a faith that has ever been perpetually affirmed with little pushback. This is a faith that there's been skeptics since the beginning, and it's forecasted even to the future. But here in verse 9, look at it with me. The true light, which this is the testimony, right? The testimony of Christ. The true light, which I love again, the true light. It's not a true light. It's the true life or light. There are false prophets in Jesus' days. There are false philosophies in our day and religions in our day. Did you reckon, did you know that? That there were false prophets in Jesus' day? So you don't have to think, well, you know, Jesus came and then everything got real confusing. All these people came claiming to be things they weren't. Literally, Scripture testifies over and over again that there are prophets that will rise among you that have already risen who will come and try to mislead you in so many ways. You see that in the Old Testament. You see it all throughout history. You even see it today. You're always going to have people who claim to be a version of a light that can give you something that you cannot find outside of them. And we got to make sure that we say we have the light, right? If I have the light, I don't need another one, right? It's the one, right? It's the, it's like my spouse. I have the spouse, all right? I have my spouse, who's my spouse, and I know that that is the spouse that I need, and there is no other, right? Which gives light, this true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I even love that, right? This light, the light of this Christ is efficacious for all those who look to it. I don't have to wonder uh, if uh, the aboriginal tribes need another light. I don't have to wonder if the South American villages need another light. I just don't have to wonder about that because this light is efficacious for everyone, for all of the world, that the light of Christ is good for all of them. Important to note. And he was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him. We're just recapitulating right there what we already said last week in verses 3 through 5. If you weren't here, go back and read verses 3 through 5. That he was in the world, incarnate, and the world was made through him, that he was the agent of creation. Christ the light was the agent of, of creation. Yet the world did not know him. And this, this begins to be the problem. Right? Even, uh, even the, his followers, in some sense, uh, even people in our day, the problem is that the world doesn't know him salvifically. Because you have to rectify that if you know the Bible, because then you read in Romans 1 where it says, and the world does know him. Right? The world knows him, and they're without excuse because they see uh, his divine attributes, right? his power, his creative agency in all creation. We can see that people know about God. The difference is, is people, everyone knows that there's a God. I mean, if you take a moment and you just look around, you know there's a God. The problem is you don't know salvation through Christ. The world didn't know him as the light of the world. Verse 11 he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, even that, verse 11, you need to understand, at least in God's redemptive programming, he's talking about Israel. 
And this is why it's important for us to understand a little bit about Israel and God's plan for them, at least, and we're talking about salvation, that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, that we see that Israel rejected Christ. And we know that the promises of God, the Abrahamic promise, the Davidic promise, all of those come to Israel. And we trust and we have confidence, full confidence, that there's coming a time in future in the millennial reign that God will fulfill his promises for Israel in the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. But what we see here in verse 11 is this point which Israel rejects him. And then we see then what we see what we call the church age where Christ has now come and the Gentiles now have a time period throughout history where the Gentiles are coming to Christ, which is promised throughout scripture. But here in 11, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. I, even if I backtrack just a little bit, you remember Luke 13, 34, where Jesus is over there by the Mount of Olives, I believe. He's in, over Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, I've often wanted, as I said earlier, like a hen gathers her chicks. I want to gather you to myself, but you're the one that kills the prophets, and you kill the ones who are sent to you, and you reject me, and you would not receive me. And this is what Jesus says about Israel. Although he wants them to respond, they reject him. And then, do you remember Matthew 10, 5 and 6, which we'll get to in the near future in our series through Matthew, that he's sending out the 12. That is, Jesus is sending out the 12. And as he sends them out, what does he tell them? Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this verse means something because it's saying, no, I came for my specific people, the Jewish people that I'd called through Abraham, out of a land that they did not know, to give them place. And they rejected Christ. This is why promises matter, isn't it? Sounds like it's all over for Israel, unless you read the promises of Scripture that teach us, as a matter of fact, God's going to open their eyes. They're going to respond. But until then, there's going to be the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, which means if you're in here and you're not Jewish, it's a good thing at least in God's eschatological plan and God's redemptive programming, that Israel rejected God because now the gospel has gone out to you and me. Talk about God's perfect planning. That the hardening of the heart of Israel would open up an opportunity for you and me to turn from our sins and respond to the gospel and be a part of the family of God grafted in to the shoot, which is Israel. What a wonderful truth. But nevertheless, we see Jesus says, even in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's the problem. We're in darkness. Christ came to be the light. And whoever would believe, pastuo, trust in him, have faith in Christ, turn from themselves, turn from darkness, trust in him, may not remain in darkness. And now you have this objection that I've touched on, but this objection, well, all these tribes and nations and languages and opinions and philosophies and these people out there, how can you be confident that your way is the only way? Why is your way the only way? And why is it, why can't my way be the way and your way also be the way? Right? And all I want you to do, I'm not here to answer all of your apologetic questions here, but all I want to do is show you that all people are doing when they're saying that is giving you a derivative of what we see in the text. He came to his own, his own rejected him. He came to the world. The world did not know him. All I want to show you is that which you are experiencing when people reject Christ is exactly just a reiteration. All it is is a different derivative of what we see in this text. And you ought to expect that. Okay, Expect it. Anticipate it. You ought to anticipate that the, the world is going to reject Christ. The world is going to reject those who follow Christ. 
That is just the, the gist and the principle of following Jesus. If the world hated me, they will hate you also. And so with that, you don't have to succumb to the skepticism and the doubts of our world simply because you know that's the prevailing wind of our culture. Right? You have to walk out there and when somebody says something that doesn't line up with Scripture and they reject the Lord that you serve, you don't have to lose faith. You just have to say, well, it's interesting that the Bible told me that this is exactly what was going to happen. When I have faith in Christ, the world's going to reject Christ. And I need to hold fast the confession of my hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And these that are walking around me walk in darkness and I'm walking in the light and it's not going to make sense to them. They're not going to like it. They love the darkness. They do not love the light. So of course, when they see me, they're not going to love what I'm bringing to the table. And at the end of the day, we should come with that expectation. Point number two on your outline. Jot this down. You need to expect people to reject Christ. Expect people to reject Christ. Christ. I just want to give a lot of hope to you, even with that statement. That's all I want you to learn right there. Expect, expect people to reject Christ. That's it. Boom. Put that in your pocket. That's it. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I feel like maybe there are some in this room who just feel like, well, if people reject Christ, then I failed. Okay, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, or uh, you walk around, I guess, maybe blissfully ignorant to think that everyone loves Jesus just because they say that, if you say anything about Jesus. But yet, you dig into it a little bit and ask them who Jesus is, how do we respond to the gospel, what's the judgment of the world. And then they begin saying, I don't like what you're saying right now. And you're like, oh, okay, well. And then you're having all these doubts. They say, well, they love Jesus and I love Jesus, but my message is completely different than their message. Okay, You have to hold fast to the confession of the hope that you have, which is a biblical confession and a biblical hope. And just because you have a lot of people, particularly in the hill country, particularly in the Bible Belt, who affirm some kind of positive confirmation about who Jesus is, but deny his power, deny his deity, deny his work, right, and somewhat, or at least deny him by their life and their actions, we have to begin saying, I've got to hold fast to the hope that I have and the confession that I have that what I know about the testimony of Christ is true and unwavering. And therefore, I can have a lot of hope and I can have a lot of confidence that people are going to reject Christ. People think they know Jesus. But those that have a false faith, those who say, I like Jesus, but I don't really want anything to do with him. He's cool, but he's not the ruler of my life. I don't have to sit and wonder, do I got it wrong? Because all I want to do is I want to make sure I've read scripture. It tells me that it takes me, he takes me out of darkness, transfers me in the kingdom of light. He has a life that he wants me to live for him as I await his return. That, that's the faith of the Christian. And yet you see the whole world walking contrary to that with some semblance of religion. And all we have to do is say, I anticipate religious people to reject Jesus. I mean, that's what you see. All of the Jews are very religious people. And almost wholesale, they rejected Jesus. So you don't have to say, well, they're just really religious, and they really pray a lot, and they really do a lot of reading. Uh, and Jesus will say to them the same thing he said to the Jews, that you read the Scriptures thinking that in them you have salvation, but you don't realize that they bear witness about me. And so what matters to us is do we hold fast to the hope and confidence that we have, and do we expect people to reject the Jesus of Scripture? Just hold that there. Because that is, like I said last week, and I thought it was good enough I could say it again this week, in John 3.19. You love John 3.16. You remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse. But then a few verses later in verse 19, it says this, And this is the judgment, 
The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People would rather live in darkness, they would rather live in the own sensualities and pleasures of their flesh than trust in the incarnate Christ to whom we celebrate the holiday Christmas. They say, I like the presence, I like the benefits of Christ, I like that there's people that I can be around who have good morals, and they're not going to rob me, and they're not going to take advantage of me, but I don't want any of that, he's my Lord. I don't want none of that, I got to be at church, and I got to go to life group, and I need to serve God's people. Like, I don't want none of that. I want, I want him, but I want my life. And we're going to say that is completely normative, not in the church, we trust, right? But it's completely normative worldview in our world that I want the benefits without the commitment. I mean, okay, we're talking about marriage, but we won't do that. We'll, talk, we'll, keep, we'll keep in the notes, okay? You should do well to anticipate that your family, your friends, and even religious people are going to reject Christ. You should just expect it. But there's also a promise, remember the God of promises, of salvation. And I want you to look at verses 12 and 13 with me, these final few verses. There's a promise of salvation that remains for those who will receive Christ. There is a condemnation, there is a judgment that we see in verses 9 and 11, because the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light. When they hear about Jesus, they see Jesus, they turn, they go back into their, their darkness because they don't want to be a part of the light. They don't want to turn from their sins. They don't want their, their works to be exposed, which is what every Christian does. When you turn from uh, your sin and you trust in Christ, your sins are exposed before God and often before one, uh, others. That's what we talk about testimonies in the baptistry, where we say, hey, here was my life before Christ. Here's my salvation. Here's what Christ has done since then. We understand that people who reject Christ are going to want to live in darkness. They're not going to want to be exposed. They're not going to want their actions and their lifestyle revealed because they love that. That's the life they want to live. They don't want to give it up. But for those who do, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, right, who believed in his name. Again, that's the, that word we get, pastuo, which means that I have faith, that I trust, that I entrust myself. It's not just believe here, right, intellectually. It's saying that I'm entrusting myself. There is something about me. I'm going to say, I was standing, right? Now I'm sitting, right? I was in the darkness. Now I'm in the light. I mean, there's more than just saying this intellectually. When you stand up and you sit down, there is an intellectual element to that because you're explaining what happened with gravity and with your matter and the body. Uh, But there's a reality in which you actually applied that and you were standing up and now you're sitting down, right? You can explain that through the idea of repentance and faith, right? You've turned from something and now you're doing something different. And this idea here, pastuo, is saying, I'm trusting in his name. I was trusting in my name. I was trusting in the world, but now I'm no longer trusting in myself or the world. I am trusting in his name. And for those who do that, pastuo, trust in him, he gave the right. I love this word. He gave the right, which means authority and power. This is great. The right to become children of God. This is the doctrine of adoption, that you Receive something that was not yours, that you did not deserve, that was nowhere in your future, that, had be, that was granted to you by the authority and power of your relationship with God. You have the right, the authority, and the power to be a child of God through faith, pastuo, in Christ. Now, verse 13, very important. Who were born. This is reborn, right? This is you were reborn. Born again is that term that you may be familiar with. Not of blood. Okay, so we understand here salvation is not a question of what class you're in or your genetic makeup. We understand salvation has nothing to do with where you're from or what blood runs through your veins, naturally speaking. 
So not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, right? This isn't about works. This isn't about self-determinism, okay? You cannot, by self-determinism, get your way into the kingdom of God. You can't sit here and struggle enough and say faith so serious enough to get your way into the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. By self-determinism, no one will receive the kingdom of God. Okay, so not of the blood, not of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Okay, remember, you're not getting to heaven on the coattails of your mom or granny. Okay, not your will, not your granny's will, not your mom's will, not your aunt's will, nobody's will, not even your own, nor the will of man, but of God. I love that. He goes ahead and he says, you know, eradicate any idea that you would ever receive salvation and adoption of sons apart from anything but a monergistic, God-determined action that saves you apart from anything else in the world. Monergistic, right? Synergistic means two, right? Synergistic, there's synergy, we're working these things together. Monergistic is there is power coming from one end, right? In salvation, you ought to think about it in a monergistic scenario. That is, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Was there any energy that a dead person's given to anything? No, not. Right? Lifeless. Monergism is the fact that from one place, there is in giving the power for something to happen. And God's salvation for us, because it is not of the will of man, the will of flesh, not of blood, but of God, it's a monergistic salvation. It is God-determined, not self-determined. And therefore, God comes in and he saves us of no work of our own. You're like, well, what about this whole repentance and faith thing? Yeah, okay, there it is, right? Your earthly response to that which has happened in you, okay? You can argue that even before someone repents, the millisecond before repentance and faith happens, salvation happens. Because even the faith and the repentance that was produced into you was produced into you by who? God, not you, right? God's will, not your own. Right? There's a mystery of salvation, at least in those little milliseconds. But the reality about it is even the faith that you have to respond and the repentance that you turn from and turn to God produced in you, not by you, but by God. That should give you confidence. And when that happens, when that monergistic action of salvation happens, given to you by God alone, apart from anything from you, you are then a child of God, adopted into his family. I just want you to think about it this way, because I think sometimes this happens with the fleeting moments that I have. I think so many people think that salvation is a negotiation with God, and salvation is not a negotiation with God. See, a negotiation uh, assumes uh, synergy, doesn't it? God, I'll give you this, you give me this. God, you do this, you do I mean, this is not a trade show, right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get a $20 shoe for $10, okay? I'm trying to understand that I do not negotiate with God for my salvation, I don't negotiate if I am the losing army in a battle. I surrender. And that's the idea of salvation. I'm not negotiating with God. It's an unconditional surrender to God's will and God's way. Now, that's a great way to think about the faith, isn't it? That I'm not sitting here saying, well, God, I'll give you this, but I'm keeping this. That's not how it works. You're in God's family. You're going to be in God's family God's way. And God's way is unconditional surrender from darkness to light, and you're now going to live in God's will, and you're going to live in God's way. And the, the way, very narrow, is what Matthew teaches, right? Luke teaches, that it's narrow. And the narrow way is Christ. It is the narrow way of his blood, the narrow way of his death, the narrow way of his resurrection, and the narrow way of his substitution, right? There's no way to the Father except for through the Son, the way, that the God, the way that God has set up salvation through the Son. People say, that's very narrow-minded. It's like, yes, but escape is a very narrow way. 
And the reality is there's not more than one way to escape from the wrath that's coming. There's one way. And the one way is Christ. And the one response is to trust in Christ for your salvation. That you would trust in His death on your behalf and His substitution, that He would be your substitute. That as He was on the cross, He died in your place. And that you would take the righteousness that was His, that He places on you, that you would stand before God, not there saying, I did this and I worked my way to this, but apart from me, I was made righteous by you. Really, you can put it this way in point number three. You need to trust Christ as your only way into God's family. Trust Christ as your only way into God's family. Now, that's simple. It's Christmas, but it is the, it is the fact of what we celebrate this season. You don't have to turn there, but I just want you to think of Romans 8, 28 through 30. I want you to think about those. Um, because you got promises tied to that, this idea, right? I mean, the, the Roman church was uh, under persecution at this time, and all of this is written in the context of suffering in this life. And yet, you have Paul saying, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right? Even that, you're a child of God, right? You're looking at me? A child of God, and you're called according not only to your purpose, but to His purposes, His purpose, His will. But for those who are, all those things work together for good for those who love God and call. And a lot of people say, I love God. I love God. Of course, all things are going to work out for me. But what about the rest of it that are called according to his purpose? Are you living according to the purposes of God? Are you called and living within that called relationship as a child of God after the will of God? And then he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, promise. Did you see that? I want you to pay attention to verse 29. Look at me. Those whom he foreknew. So before time, he, he knew this beforehand and he predestined. So you have a destiny and this was predestined. So before anything had happened, God had already predestined those who were saved to be conformed to the image of his son. I, listen to that. Do you see the importance in understanding God's promises of saying, how do I know God's going to save me. How do I know God's going to sanctify me? How do I know God's going to glorify me? Because he had chose to do this before you ever did anything in your entire life. Before you were conceived, this was already God's plan and nothing's going to thwart God's plan. So I can have absolute confidence that I'm going to be conformed into the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, this is one of our problems if we look at this about me, right? It's not about me. It's about thee. It's about God. You're going to be conformed into the image of, of Christ, not because you, but so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. You are saved so that Christ would receive the inheritance of the nations to which he died for. So is there a blessing for you in that? Absolutely. But you forget who this is about. This is about Christ, and it's his and you are saved, and you are conformed, and you are going to be glorified so that he would receive the inheritance which is his, which is due his name. And part of that is the blessing that you would be his children. So who's going to thwart that plan? Nobody. Who's going to thwart your sanctification, your glorification, your justification? Nobody. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And all that just to think this. That which God has started, he will bring to completion. And you're only going to be living in the light of that today if you trust and understand the promises of God that come from the light 
that came into the world at the first advent. And now from that first advent, now into the church age where we currently live, you must be, if you're going to be thinking about living for Christ, if you're going to be thinking about Christmas rightly, what you're doing here is you're celebrating the fact that you inherited an inheritance because you are a child of God through Christ. And therefore, as you are a child of Christ, you're going to then live for Christ. And that is what Christmas is about, that you and I are going to sit here, we're going to celebrate Christmas, we're going to celebrate Christ's birth because of our, expe- our expectation for his return. And until then, we're going to live in light of Christ. We are going to be sanctified because we've been justified. We're going to be sanctified and we're going to be living for him every single day, which means Christmas isn't about my presence, right? Christmas isn't ultimately about my kids coming up here on the platform. It's about Christ. And I need to figure out what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and Christmas to make sure my kids and my family know that this day is about him and his family. And then you ask the people around you, are you in his family? Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? God, I do with with great sincerity and great severity want want to think about this congregation, those who are congregated here in this moment, to ask them, do, you, do we celebrate Christmas for ourselves or for Christ? Do we trust in the light of the world? Do we look to Scripture as your promises that have been fulfilled and look forward to the ones that have not been fulfilled? And do we find our assurance and our confidence in that? God, I pray for this church that we would be a kind of church that is unwavering, a church that in a real way does expect people to reject Christ, not that we find joy in that, what a devastating reality the world will reject Christ, but what a more devastating reality that the church isn't prepared for people to reject Christ, and then they lose hope and confidence. And I just pray that as your word tells us that that is the truth of the reality of the world we live in, that people reject you, that it would give us a, a peculiar kind of confidence knowing that that is exactly what your word says is going to happen. And then all of that, God, we would find great confidence in being your child, to being adopted, to being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. And I pray that so much of this sermon was a helpful encouragement and exhortation for those that are here. God, that they would uh, heed your word, they would submit to it. Those who aren't saved in this room would recognize that salvation is, is a one-way street. It's for us to call on the name of Christ, to save us from our sins that God would redeem us and purchase us and adopt us. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.